You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, as the world's economic and political movers and shakers convene for their annual get-together in Davos, the development NGO Oxfam has produced a report highlighting what it sees as the link between growing, and some would say obscene, global income and wealth inequality and poverty. I'll be discussing the report and related issues with Oxfam CEO in Ireland, Jim Clarkin, and Irish Times foreign affairs correspondent, Ruin McCormick. And as the first US presidential caucus looms in Iowa at the end of the month, is it possible that Hillary Clinton is now facing a real challenge for the Democratic nomination? Simon Carswell will be on from Washington to discuss Bernie Sanders, the man and the appeal of this self-avowed socialist to grassroots Democrats. He nails his colours to the mast in Sunday's debate. You are right. All of us have denounced Trump's attempt to divide this country, the anti-Latino rhetoric, the racist rhetoric, the anti-Muslim rhetoric. But where I disagree with you, Governor O'Malley, is I do believe we have to deal with the fundamental issues of a handful of billionaires I agree with who that. control the economic and political life of this country. I agree. Nothing real will get happen unless we have a political revolution and, where and, millions of people we're gonna... finally stand up. I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. First to Jim Clarkin and Ruin McCormack. According to Oxfam, in 2015, just 62 individuals had the same wealth as 3.6 billion people, the bottom half of humanity. This figure is down from 388 individuals as recently as 2010. The wealth of the richest 62% of the population in the world has risen by, risen by 44% in the last five years since uh, 2010. Jim, give us a sense of the sweep of these figures and the broad picture that it's drawing. Sure. Um, I think you've you've articulated just even in that short space of time um, how how great this gap is becoming. Um, I mean, you could argue that four hundred odd people owning so much was it was an awful was a very small number of people. But when you when that has been reduced down to just sixty two, I mean, we made headlines two years ago when we mentioned a figure of eighty five. Uh, we talked about them all fitting on a double-decker bus, just to kind of put it in context, not that any of these people would ever be getting double-decker buses, but then if you look at 62, it's it's nearly, ha- you know, it's it's heading towards half of that. And the the worry, I mean, that just so the people fully understand, that means that they own as much as 3.5 billion people. It's absolutely staggering, and it's it's a level of inequality that hasn't been seen in, in over a century. It's It's obscene, and... It's it's moving in that direction pretty rapidly, and then when you look towards the wealthiest one percent, um, that's the entire one percent of of the wealthiest people in the planet. They own half of the entire wealth of the planet, and you know we we see this moving in as I say in this in this direction, very rapidly, and we're very concerned um, about its impact on poverty alleviation and on helping uh, the poorest people to lift themselves out of poverty. And of the of the sixty two, would you know how many of them are women? Um, I think a, a handful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yet what we're talking about at the same time is uh, UN figures showing that there has been a, a significant uh, reduction in the numbers living in absolute poverty. Uh, and half the, the number of people living below the extreme poverty line um, between 1990 and, and 2010. 
Some say that inequality is just a fact and is not really connected to poverty. Should we be worried about it? Absolutely, we should. Um, the, 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 we have made great progress in relation to extreme uh, poverty um, reduction in the last 20 or so years. And that's to be welcomed as part of the Millennium Development Project. Uh, in September this year, or just last year, we've, we've signed the new Sustainable Development Goals with the intention of uh, eliminating extreme poverty entirely. Now, just remember that those that extreme poverty means you live below one twenty-five dollars a day. It's 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 a minuscule amount of money, but it has to be. We have to put a number on it. If you're marginally above that, you're still extremely poor. But we have to have a target to to go for. What what our report shows and what our research and analysis tells us is that if in fact this rising inequality hadn't gone, become so stark in recent years, it's possible we could have lifted another 200 million people out of poverty. So over that 20-year uh, period that you mentioned, uh, we reduced it from about 1.6 billion to about 800 million. There are still 800 million people tonight who will go hungry, 800 million people who are living in extreme poverty. That could have been reduced by another 200. We could have 600 and really be heading in the right direction. But that is a calculation based on dividing the extra income that those people got into the uh, extra income the, the poorest could have got. Uh, and it's not showing a causal connection. Well, well it is in that if, if you know, what, what our analysis shows us is that the, the extraordinary rate at which that 62, um, their wealth increased by 44% in the last five years, 44%. They were already extraordinarily wealthy and it nearly uh, increased by half again. Meanwhile, the 3.5 billion people, the poorest half of the world, their wealth reduced. Now, the, the fact that the wealthiest, let's say the 1% of the world, have so many opportunities to avoid paying tax, to avoid um, uh, using their wealth and their, you know, sometimes that's, that's just retained wealth uh, for economic benefit means that it's, it's not being put to productive use. Uh, it's not being put to the kind of use that, that would uh, help support economies and help people to be lifted out of poverty. But most importantly, the amount of tax that is being dodged across the world, which you know, at its most important level needs to be invested in public services, health, education, social protection. That's, what's li that's what lifts the extreme most poor people in the world out of poverty is, is that level of social protection and level of investment in public services. Those are the kind of things that matter, that keep people below that line. So the fact that developing country governments particularly didn't have the kind of resources that they should have had because of this wide-scale tax dodging meant that those governments were not in a position to invest in those services. So you're saying, in a way, that the, the economic power of this the 62, for the sake of argument, is matched by political power to fashion and change tax systems to, to their benefit, and that this is the, the mechanism uh, by which uh, they enrich themselves and impoverish Absolutely. Uh, the poor. Absolutely. We, we, we talk about this um, this power vacuum that, that finds its way towards these wealthiest people. They have tremendous access to the levers of power. They have tremendous access to uh, people with, with uh, financial accounting, taxation skills that nobody else has. They have access to, the mo to, to being in a position to move money around the world. And, and 
multinational companies the same. Um, just to give a figure, we estimate that the, the loss of tax revenue to developing countries every year uh, through money being siphoned out, money that is belonging to the citizens of those countries, let's remember, is anywhere between 100 and $200 billion every single year. That alone would have a dramatic effect on alleviating poverty if it was invested in the services that those people need. And of course, uh, a lot of African uh, billionaires, are, are most of their, their money is, is held offshore. Isn't it? Absolutely. There's a, there's a real issue with offshore wealth by, of, of individuals. It's estimated that there are 1.76 trillion, I mean, the figures are hard to get your head around, uh, dollars of money being held offshore globally. That's offshore from this country and offshore from developing countries and from everywhere else. It's being held in other places where the tax authorities don't have access to it. And because there's such a veil of secrecy around these uh, banking arrangements, it means the tax authorities have no access to them. So there are two parts of it. There's the, the individuals themselves that you mentioned and that the multinational companies who are being facilitated to move money around. And just to give a, a small example of that, um, in 2012, um, U.S. multinationals made $80 billion of profit in Bermuda. At least that's what they were listed. More, more money than they made in China, Japan, Germany and France combined. Now, that's just not, not realistic. That did not happen because of the, because of the economic value that, that was delivered in, or the market that was delivered in Bermuda. So something is grossly wrong with the global taxation system. It's not real wealth. It's accounting wealth. Com completely. And, and it, it can be changed. We, we, we can't be defeatist about this. People, you know, there's, there will always be inequality in the world. Um, but there doesn't have to be stark inequality. And what, what we have to ensure that, that the political policies that are there, both national and, but at global level too, don't facilitate this getting continually out of control, where ultimately global economies are not working for the citizens of the world anymore. They're working for a small elite few. Ruin, uh, such trends uh, reflected in the UN annual UNDP's annual report. That's right. I was just going to add one one small point of what Jim had to say there, which is that we tend to have this conversation in global terms, and that's very important, particularly as um, the world's elite is meeting in Davos this week. It's very important to be able to drive home these points at a global uh, at a global level, I suppose. But when we drill down into the national figures, I think it's there where we can see that causal link between um, between inequality and and growth rates. There was uh, a piece of research by the OECD in 2014, which drew exactly this link by looking at stats from its various uh, member states. And in that study, it dismissed the idea of trickle-down economics in much the same way that Oxfam has in, in this report. And it found, for example, that the UK economy would have been 20% bigger had the gap uh, between rich and poor not widened since the 1980s. Um, it found similar stats for states across the OECD. So, for example, it found that uh, rising inequality knocked more than 10 percentage points off growth in Mexico and New Zealand, nearly nine points in the UK, Finland and Norway, and between six and seven points in the US, Italy and Sweden. So when we drill down into individual countries' stats, we can see that, certainly according to the OECD, and it was one of the most reputable studies on this area, that there is a causal link between uh, economic growth and uh, uh, inequality. Just on the on the UN report, I mean, what the what the Oxfam report does is it drives home this point uh, that the big winners in the global global economy, as it's currently structured, are those at the top, and the big losers are those at the bottom. And in that respect, it very much mirrors the work of the UNDP, and in particular the UN. Uh, 
FDP development report uh, for 2015, which came out last month. Uh, I mean, we have to acknowledge, first of all, that there has been a huge progress in the eradication of extreme poverty since 1990. Um, but that doesn't take away from the fact, I mean, I think a lot of that eradication, for example, was due to the growth in China, um, the, the rise of incomes in the middle class in China. But it doesn't, that trend doesn't negate the fact that uh, this very much exists, this growing inequality exists, and it comes across every year in the UNDP report. So, for example, this UNDP, UNDP report is an attempt to measure uh, the progress of individual states and of the world economy in terms other than, uh, than, than pure economics. So it's looking at quality of life, it's looking at education, at health, um, at various other indicators like that. And what it found was that between 1990 and 2014, the number of people living in countries with very high scores on the Human Development Index, which, as I said, ranks states on factors such as income, life expectancy, health and education and so on, more than doubled from 0.5 billion to 1.2 billion. Likewise, the number of people in countries with low human development scores fell by more than 60% from 3.2 billion to 1.2 billion. Uh, 19 countries moved out of that low human development category, such as DR Congo, Ghana and Namibia. Um, what the UNDP focused on this year, every year it takes a theme, and this year it looked at work, um, and it looked at inequality in the workplace, and it tried to look at the effect that this has on inequality and, and uh, development more generally. And if I can take just one or two quick examples, it found that women carry out 52% of all global work, including unpaid work, but they're less likely to be paid for their work than men. Three out of every four hours of unpaid work in the world is carried out by women. When women are paid, they earn on average 24% less than men and occupy less than a quarter of senior business positions worldwide. And they found example after example along, along those lines. Um, another example I was struck by in the UD, UNDP report was technology, um, where they found that the digital revolution is causing uh, an increasingly polarised world of work and that this is sort of accentuating these, these trends, these broader inequality trends that, that we see. Um, now, clearly, you could argue on the basis of these figures and on those uh, outlined by Oxfam in its report that more equality is a good in itself. In other words, that it's an objective that every state should be trying to meet, that it's a way of allowing citizens to achieve the good life, which I suppose is the objective of every government in a way. Um, but there's also that more hard-headed argument underlined by the UNDP, underlined by the OECD, which is that there is a causal connection between economic growth and, and uh, equality. I, I was going to come back to that actually because I, I was struck by uh, um, in in the the uh, Oxfam report how uh, you you cite from the work of of an economist uh, called Thomas Piketty who became who really put the idea of inequality back on the global uh, political agenda uh, with his his book a, a couple of years ago and I I just quote from uh, Oxfam's report. Um, uh, it says that one of the key trends underlying this huge concentration of wealth and incomes is the increasing return uh, to capital versus labour. In almost all rich countries and in the most developing countries, the share of national income going to workers has been falling. So we're talking about then, uh, to paraphrase that, of uh, of not a, about an unfairness in the economic system, but a fundamental contradiction of the of the economic system. And is that uh, at root what Oxfam is saying about the world economy? Well, it's it's certainly something that has to be very seriously considered when you think about how we can deal with this and how we can tackle this. Um, and I think that that point about labour is is key, 
the the number of people that are working beyond what would be a normal working week and living in extreme poverty is staggering. Um, the fact that wages globally have not essentially increased at all in the last number of years, whereas the the obviously uh, capital has increased in value very dramatically. Labour has also got much more precarious. And I'm, I'm glad you raised the issue of, of women in the workplace. I mean, even in a country like Ireland, there is a 14% gap between uh, in the genders in terms of pay. But in developing countries and across the world more globally, we produced a report last year that said it would take an entire generation for the, for the genders to be equal in terms of pay, uh, if ever, based on the current trajectory. So the, those those issues have to be kind of very starkly addressed and, and, and part of how we we resolve this. But we, we can't have a situation where labour continues to get devalued more and more when ultimately uh, wealthy people become wealthier because of the labour of others. Mm. Uh, nobody has a problem with wealthy people per se. It's about how fair the system is to ensure that uh, people who do put in you know, a full working week in, in any part of the world uh, have sufficient reward that they're not living in extreme poverty. That's that's an obscenity. Um, you know, you could see where where in, in countries where there is dire conflict or, or other major issues why people will be living in poverty and they have to be supported externally. But when people are living in countries where where there's a level of stability and there's a there's an there is economic opportunity through work through through factories and multinational companies or local companies or through farming or whatever it might be, um, it's an obscenity that those people are extremely poor. And of course, the the people that produce the food in the world to take it to its extreme level are the most likely to be hungry. And you see uh, the way labour in in um, in developing countries, uh, specifically in relation to farming, is the least rewarded. Run the. Argument uh, is not the, the prevailing argument, if you like, in the development uh, uh, world. Uh, we still see governments arguing that trade, for example, will lift all boats and that the priority must be, must be to empower uh, the abilities of countries like, like in Africa to, to trade their way out of this crisis. Do you think that there's going to be a change, though, in the nature of that discourse? Do you think... Uh, do you see any sign that this is actually beginning to be uh, to be a new discussion? I think certainly most enlightened discussions about development see it not as a question of how much money can be raised in development funding alone for for the for Africa and for parts of Asia, for example. It's a wider discussion about trade, about remittances, about uh, about bilateral relationships, and about development aid. Um, if you look at the sustainable development goals that Jim mentioned, um, I mean, one of the criticisms of them is that there's too much in there, that they're too vast, that you've got, I think it's 17 goals and more than 100 subsidiary goals known as targets. But the advantage of it is that um, it 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 gives you a sense of the the. The, the width of this discussion, how um, we're not simply talking about, I mean, one of the criticisms of the previous system, the Millennium Development Goals, was that it was purely about, or there was rather there was a, too much of a concentration in development aid, that it was the rich world telling the, the developing world, this is what we think you need and 
this is what it'll take to fix your problems. Whereas this is a much broader set of questions. And within it, you've got everything from migration, remittances, to trade, uh, to health and education and bilateral relationships. I think most of the enlightened discussion taking place on how to make the world a more equal place takes place. Th that conversation is a much wider conversation than it might have been maybe 20 years ago. But inequality is not part of the development goals. It is. Yeah, there's a, there, there's a goal number, I think it's number 10, reduce inequality within and among countries. Um, and within that, then there are 10 subsidiary targets within the equality bracket. So, for example, if I look at target 10.1, by 2030, progressively achieve and sustain income growth of the bottom 40% of the population at a rate higher than the national average. And, and not only is it about inequality as it applies to the poorest countries in the world, but inequality as it applies to Ireland and Sweden and Germany and, and everywhere else. That's an important point to make, that this is a global compact. It's not about the the old-style global north and global south. It's it's all countries and inside countries. So Ireland equally has a duty to deliver on its performance in relation to these goals, uh, no more than Ireland has to play a role globally. But but I think you know, the issues of, of financing for development and, and how development, uh, particularly from the, the global south, will, will, will progress is it will it will be based on a, a multiple um, uh, streams. Uh, development assistance will continue to be important, but as I say, when when huge tax revenues are being lost, that's going to be another domestic uh, resource mobilisation also going to be important in in countries that are starting to move out of that very lower tier. Um, and then you know how how will the, the trade arrangements be be managed in a way that's that's fair and gives these these countries a real opportunity. Thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. The poll figures suggest that Bernie Sanders is catching Hillary Clinton up and that his fundraising is sneaking up on her. Clinton's campaign is preparing for a primary fight now that could stretch into late April or early May. On, on the debate on Sunday, uh, the, uh, head, the last one ahead of Iowa, um, what, how did he do, um, Simon Carswell? What's his style like and what... What was the message uh, that is so appealing to democratic activists? I think he did very well. Uh, I mean, he comes across as being very emotional. Uh, he speaks kind of from the heart of the Democratic Party rather than the head sometimes. And certainly is a much angrier debate than the three previous debates that we've seen. And that really comes down to the fact that Bernie Sanders is challenging Hillary Clinton in the first two states, Iowa, which holds its caucuses on February 1st, and New Hampshire, which holds its primary on February 9th. We've seen uh, her lead in Iowa narrow quite a bit. Um, you're talking about a lead of about uh, uh, narrow to about four points now, when she was in double-digit figures um, before Christmas. And uh, one poll, even by Quinnipiac University earlier this month, put Sanders ahead, put her put in 49 to 44 percent ahead, and he has a, has a, a lead in New Hampshire as well. So. That would be quite embarrassing for Hillary Clinton, given that she has been for a long time the presumptive Democratic nominee. So if she lost both those states, it would raise questions about her candidacy and her potential in the general election. But really, the gloves came off on Saturday, on Sunday night in the uh, Democratic debate. Uh, we saw much stronger attacks uh, on policies and Clinton digging Sanders on various policy pivots that he's taken. Uh, I think it was something of a draw, though, the debate on Sunday night. I don't think it was a win for Sanders. I think he was saying things that his own base would be very happy about, but I don't think he did enough 
to really extend his support outside that base, and he needed to. He really, to, really needed to knock down Hillary Clinton at some point in the debate if he's going to have any chance beyond New Hampshire in places like South Carolina and Nevada, um, particularly South Carolina, where Hillary Clinton is very strong support among African Americans. So yeah. I think that Sanders has done. He did quite a good job on Sunday, but not enough. In some ways, he, he is the the Democratic Donald Trump, a sort of anti-politics candidate. Um, and it seems that the, these anti-politics ideas uh, are, are very much the theme of this election. Well, it, it is. And he's he's an anti-establishment figure, even though uh, even though he's been in politics for a long, long time. He's been in, in Congress since 1991, uh, in the Senate since 2007. Uh, and the irony is you know, that the uh, energetic alternative to Hillary Clinton is a 74-year-old uh, socialist backbencher. It's it surprised her, it surprised her campaign, surprised a lot of people in the media as well. But his his style and what he stands for is very appealing to a lot of voters, particularly to young people. He leads two to one against Hillary Clinton amongst young voters. And I was out up in New Hampshire last week and heard him speak in Dartmouth College in Hanover in the west of the state, which where he would have some support because it's near his own home state of Vermont across the border, across the Connecticut River. And I spoke to a number of people there and they like the fact that he's not a typical politician, that he's been campaigning for the same thing for years, for four decades. Um, they like his integrity. They like his unwavering message. Uh, and... They like the fact that, for example, uh, he'll make healthcare universal um, and that he would uh, make college education free and make student loans and college debt more affordable. So all of those yeah. are messages that appeal to the uh, grassroots democratic base. And, and he's been very critical of uh, the political political links with Wall Street and specifically in relation to Hillary Clinton. And perhaps we could just hear this clip of, of his critique of her. What do you see as the difference between what you would do about the banks and what Secretary Clinton would well, do? The first difference is I don't take money from big banks. I don't get personal speaking fees from Goldman Sachs. Uh, of course, critiques of Wall Street go down very well in this campaign. They do, and Bernie Sanders has uh, got a lot of support from his, uh, his very, very strongly uh, supportive uh, core base amongst progressives for that message. And this was one of the most effective attacks that Bernie Sanders had in the debate on Sunday night, questioning uh, Hillary Clinton's close ties with Wall Street, effectively saying she's in the back pocket of Wall Street because of these large speaking fees that she's received from the likes of Goldman Sachs. And she, he raises the question here as well, how can you reform Wall Street when you're receiving and have received so much money from Wall Street? And it's a, it's a strong question. It's a very difficult question for her to respond to. But what she did, which was interesting, was she responded by saying, uh, by aligning herself with Barack Obama. She said that Barack Obama has received donations from Wall Street and that Sanders has criticized those as well. And it, it was an interesting tack for her to take in the debate by evoking Obama. She's trying to present herself as this natural and viable successor to Obama, and as the pragmatist to the idealist in Sanders, painting him as a doer rather than a dreamer and trying to portray him as this fringe candidate. And she's, this is a message that she has uh, been bringing to her voters on the campaign trail for a few weeks now, trying to show that uh, Bernie Sanders' policies really have no chance of passing Congress or getting the support of Republicans and questioning the costing of a lot of these policies that he's introduced. But he has been very resolute in refusing to make uh, personal attacks on her and personal attacks on, on, on Bill Clinton. Indeed, we can listen to an, another clip just now. 
I was asked a question. You didn't have to answer it that way, though. Well, Why did you? Ben, if I don't answer it, then there's another front page story. Yes. And I mean this seriously. You know that. We've been through this. Yes, his behavior was deplorable. Have I ever once said a word about that issue? No, I have not. I'm going to debate Secretary Clinton, Governor Malley, on the issues facing the American people, not Bill Clinton's personal behavior. That, that makes him stand out as a candidate, indeed, doesn't it? That... Well, it does. He has said for some time that he is refusing to go negative in his campaign. and He took the moral high ground on Sunday by, by, not, by refusing to talk about Bill Clinton's past transgressions. Um, uh, he, even though he has said he's not going to go negative, he has run an ad in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, drawing the differences between his policies on Wall Street and Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton has said that she would break up banks where they pose a risk to the economy and to the country. Bernie Sanders has said that he'll, you know, there are some banks that are just too big, so he's going to break them up. So that's a difference that he's tried to explore. And while they haven't been negative personally, they certainly have been negative raising questions about Hillary Clinton's campaign. But I think a lot of people appreciate the fact that he hasn't gone negative. It's one of the things uh, that that people like about him, that he hasn't gone personal in this campaign, in contrast to the Republican side, where it's very personal. Now, he's in there for the long run, at least that's what he insists. And it's interesting, his ground game, uh, that is to say his network of, of, of workers throughout the states, is actually more developed than Hillary Clinton's. Uh, it is developed, and certainly he's put a lot of uh, focus on Iowa and New Hampshire. I question whether he has the focus in some of the other states. I know he started trying to hire uh, people in South Carolina, and he's appointed people to represent him there. I think South Carolina could be a pivotal primary for him when voters go to the polls on the 27th of February, because that's one state where Hillary Clinton still has a commanding lead, one of the early states that votes that she still has a commanding lead. But if you look at her polls nationally, she's up on an average of 13 points, and one poll last weekend even gave her, gave her a 25-point lead. So she's really quite far ahead in the national polls. And really, you know, the question is, is what damage will a loss in Iowa, New Hampshire, to Hillary Clinton, uh, what, 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 it would, what it would do to her campaign. He launched a, a, a very strong um, defense of, of Martin Luther King yesterday in a speech in Birmingham, Alabama. Presumably this is an attempt to uh, recruit uh, African-American supporters where, who are a constituency that he, he really hasn't made inroads into. Is this likely to be successful? Well, I think he's perhaps a little bit too late to the game. He does mention in his campaign speeches, he talks about the importance of criminal justice reform and he talks about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement quite a bit. Um, but if you look at the polling, Hillary Clinton is very strong um, amongst minorities and amongst women, whereas he's strong against men and young people. So uh, I think that... Um, I think that he has a challenge to try and win over African-American voters at this stage. Um, perhaps it's a little too late. And if you were going to put any money on this, on the Iowa caucuses, where, would it be with him or with Hillary? I think it's a dead heat at the moment, and it's very close to call. I think he could edge it. I certainly think there's a, there's a wind at his back. Um, he's very popular on the ground. and People are very excited with his message. I think he will win New Hampshire. Um, but ultimately, I think that Hillary Clinton will win the Democratic nomination because one of the things you hear many people on the campaign trail when you talk to supporters of Hillary Clinton and even some on the Sanders camp, they uh, they realize that Hillary is perhaps more electable in a general election. Now, Sanders has tried to counter that view, and certainly it's, a, it's an impression that, that the uh, Clinton camp are very quick to put out there and put out there quite a bit. Um, and, and Sanders has come back and said, well, he'd beat Trump by 15 points nationally, um, according to a recent poll 
whereas Clinton would only beat him by 10 points. So he's trying to undermine that electability issue. But I just think that Hillary is too strong. Uh, I just cannot see her not winning the uh, Democratic nomination, whenever that might be. She has said in, in, in she said last week that the her, she could be campaigning all the way to June. So it could be a much longer slog than she was expecting. Makes for an interesting election. Anyway, thank you very much, Simon. Thanks, Paddy. Thanks to Simon Carswell, Jim Clarkin, Ruin McCormick, to our producer, Declan Conlon, and Rob Sullivan on sound. And just a reminder, you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.